Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. It's Father's Day, and I've had to write two sermons this year. It's horrible. I'm not a pastor anymore. I used to have to write two a week, three a week. Now I'm an evangelist. You write a couple of three, and they're going to last you all year because you're not going back to the same place. Your buddy Rich Hall, Rich Holmes had me do Mother's Day. I, I, I made a decision. That's my last Mother's Day sermon. It was a great sermon, but I'm just not, that's just not my lane. My whole spiritual formation was male. I was raised by a domineering stepdad, played football, went to a military academy, got saved in jail, spent eight and a half years in prison. My conversation is very focused on the way a man thinks because that's how I was formed. So talking to ladies, it's not that I don't like talking to you. It's just the way I talk to you gets emotional reactions I just don't want to really deal with. I mean, it's just I don't want to have to deal with all that. I mean, you know, I never forget the first time I told one of the secretaries at church, no, I was carrying a box down the hallway, and it weighed forever. And I was straining going in the hallway, and one of the ladies said, Maury, it was his daughter, Maury, could you come move this desk? And I said, no. I mean, I'm straining to get this thing out the door. Well, she goes to her dad crying. He told me no. And he said, Maury, you never answer a woman with a one-word answer. That's a man's conversation. Yes and no. But he said, women, they, they, they don't deal with one-word answers. They need the reason. They need the feeling. They need a conversation. I said, I was carrying a box. He said, it's not worth the hour you're fixing to spend my daughter getting her over being upset. Put the box down and answer the question. As soon as I move this box, I'll be right back unless it's an emergency right now. Life ought just not to be that complicated. I'll just go back to prison where I can say no. So, yeah. <laughs> Let me give you a scripture to start this off. We live in a time that fatherhood is under attack. When women are paid to have children outside of wedlock, we incentivize single-parent families. And we know that the consequences of that are costly to the children. The percentage of them, 71%, they're 71% less likely to graduate high school. They're 83% more likely to live in poverty. And it doesn't mean God can't fix it. But it's a challenge that God never intended for us to have. He intended for families to have a mother and a father. Now, I went through, as a child, a divorce from my, my natural father, and I went through some of this stuff, and God can fix it. But there is a right way. Well, the same thing in churches. A pastor that births a church is a father in the house. A person that leads you to Christ is a spiritual father to you. For those of you that got saved under my ministry, I'm your father, your spiritual father. But for those of you that didn't, I'm a coach, a consultant, a pastor. Actually, I'm a recovering pastor, and I'm not done recovering yet. But I'm not your spiritual father. I may be a 
something to this house because it started out of the church with a man that came to Christ under my ministry. But there's only one father in this house, and it's pastor. And what happens, we have guys trying because of the lack of fatherhood in people's lives, and it's showing up in the brokenness in our pulpits. We have people trying to position themselves as fathers of people. You're not their father. You can be a stepdad. Be a good stepdad. You can be a great pastor. But Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. That term father is special. It's not to just be used lightly. I stand here today as the product of a spiritual father. I stand here today as the product of a lot of people's lives that influenced me. None of us got to where we are all by ourselves, uh, by our own effort, our experiences in life, our formation, our influencers in life, affected by family. Who you married has affected your trajectory, your education, your teachers, your mom and dad, your friends, your coaches, your spouses, your mentors. All of those people affected your life. And today I want to talk to you about lessons I learned from my spiritual father. The man that led me to Jesus in the Dallas County Jail gave me my first Bible and the greatest sermon I ever heard read this book, and do what it says. And lessons I learned from that man. I met him in the Dallas County Jail, and I was strung out and messed up, and somebody pulled an old video up of him talking about the first time he met me. He asked me why I did what I did, and I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't remember most of that first meeting because I was so messed up on drugs. But somehow he watched the hand of God reach into my life, and he believed that God had a purpose for me. And this man that was pastoring a fast-growing megachurch two times a year drove all the way to Huntsville, Texas to spend a day working with me. Had me write him a letter every day for eight and a half years that he kept as a diary of what God was doing in my life. He wrote me a letter once a week for eight and a half years. When I got out, he mentored me. I jogged with him in the morning. I went on family vacation. I visited hospitals with him. I sat in his office when he dictated letters. I sat at his side when he did staff meetings. I got on a plane when he got on a plane. For six months, he took me everywhere he went to mentor me. The father effect shows up in incredible ways. And many times we don't even understand how impactful a spiritual father is in our life. Joseph was not the father of Jesus Christ. He was the stepfather. God was Jesus' father. The, the father was God. But Joseph was entrusted as a steward with the son of the living God. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you say, what did he learn from his mother and father? Because Jesus' values were not just affected by what he saw God do. They were lived out in front of him by an earthly father and mother. His dad had an ear to hear what the father was saying. Because when he was going to put Mary away, and you notice he was compassionate. He wasn't going to stone her for getting pregnant, but it was his right. He was going to put her away silently. 
But God spoke to him. He had the ability in the middle of an emotional, heartbreaking crisis, both personally heartbreaking and publicly humiliating. He had the ability to hear the voice of God, to stay tuned in to what God was saying. He had the ability to say, if that's the will of God for me, I'm going to marry this girl and embrace the shame she brings to this marriage by being pregnant out of wedlock because nobody in this town is going to believe we did not have relationships premaritally. He didn't let church hurt control his life. People today whine, quit, backslide. I got church hurt. That's so stupid. Everybody gets church hurt. Jesus got church hurt. You want to be like Jesus? Embrace the pain. You say, well, I got hurt. Well, it's, you're going to get hurt again. It can be self-induced. Pastor didn't see you and walk past you. Instead of realizing he was going somewhere, you're going to get off in a corner and moan and groan because pastor didn't talk to you today. He just walked right past me. He just doesn't care that I'm here. I'm sorry, that's the girl part. And I don't understand that part. But what's worse, we got men talking like girls. Pastor didn't talk to me. He didn't hug me today. It's like, yeah, just, you know, go do some push-ups. So, I mean, it's just crazy. His daddy didn't let church hurt hurt him because back in those days, they would put those little boys in school, and if they were really doing good, they could go all the way to rabbi, but when they began to struggle, they weren't the cream of the crop. They told him, you need to go get a trade. His daddy could have been a rabbi, but he didn't make the cut and got kicked out of rabbi class and became a carpenter. His daddy could have said, well, I got hurt. We're not going to temple. We're not going to practice Judaism anymore, but he didn't do it. He endured the pain and stayed faithful to God. Isn't it interesting what Jesus learned from his dad about how to embrace a woman that is going to live with shame? Why did Jesus talk to the woman at the well? Because his daddy loved his mother who was the woman at the well. Why did Jesus love the woman caught in adultery and stand in the gap? Because his daddy stood in the gap for his mama. He learned how to love people that other people were shaming and rejecting because he was the son of Joseph. Things he learned from his father. When he picked his disciples, he didn't pick the highly educated. He picked the people who had also been rejected along the journey and became workers in a trade. Learned that from his daddy. He honored his father and his mother by learning from them how to love people, how to live with people, and how to get over the pain people caused without losing a right spirit. My spiritual father affected me in incredible ways. And I can't really count them all, but I'm going to give you a few today. He taught me always keep his purpose and make it your passion. What is the purpose of God in your life? And do you have a passion for the purpose of God? 
and you got to reach the lost. And when the chaplain told him when he came to prison, you know, Mari Davis talks to every inmate that comes into this prison. And that's how God allowed me to lead thousands of people to Jesus because the plan of God when you get saved is to live your life for other people. It's not to live for yourself. It's to live for other people. And as long as we're self-focused, we're not people-focused. And this generation has lost their mind. You know, when I grew up, nobody took a selfie. We, we, I'm going to take a selfie. Why? Well, I'm going to put it on, on my Instagram, and people are going to live their life vicariously through my life. It's amazing to me when I put food on my Instagram, how many people comment on it. Don't Just go to the restaurant and live your own life. I just crack up. People say, why do you put it out there? It's a hoot. Why do you care what I eat? Why do we do that? What if we took an ussy? How about a wee? We. I couldn't help myself, Terry. I heard you say that one time. No, I didn't. <laughs> How do we get so focused on ourselves? You got to keep the purpose of God. You build the church. Zeal for the house, consume Jesus. I want to say that again. Zeal for the house, consume Jesus. Does zeal for the house consume? You say, I'm going to be a Christian. That word means like Jesus. If zeal for the house consume Jesus, is zeal for the house, we've got to build the house that God has called us to build. And it requires zeal, it requires passion. It requires sacrifice. I mean, people say, well, I go to church twice a month. You're backslid. Because the heart of God is faithfulness. It doesn't mean you got to be in church every Sunday in this church. You got to take a vacation. But where you go on vacation, there's a church. Go to church. You take a vacation from work. You don't take a vacation from God. You say, wow. That's harsh. No, it's encouraging if you have it in your heart. Your spirit man has never said, I don't want to go. It's always your carnal man. And he said, you've got to keep his purpose, your passion, in an incredible way. you got to avoid distractions. He said, Davis, as you go through life, so many things are going to drive you nuts you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to do that. You're going to get called to do this. What did God call you to do? Stay in that lane and do that. Drive that thing where God called you to be. Don't get distracted by the world. Don't get distracted by all those things. You got to keep his purpose, your passion. I said, yes, sir. Number two, you got to sharpen your skill set. You know, a sharp axe takes less work you got to study to show yourself approved. You know, I, I still read the Bible, and I still find things that are fascinating to me. The other day I was reading about Moses standing at the Red Sea, and in my whole world I've always seen Moses standing there just like Charlton Heston. That's who Moses looked like. And he was standing there with a rod and his staff, and he stuck it out, and the sea parted, and they walked over and dry land. But if you read that scripture, different, like it's actually written, it wasn't daytime. It was dark. The fire was behind them holding Pharaoh's army back. They couldn't see. And there was a mighty or a strong east wind that blew. Do you know Israel was on the west side of the Red Sea? The water didn't start parting where they were. The water was parting in the dark before they ever saw the miracle coming. And that word strong means uh, ancient. 
ancient east wind, which means God had had that in his hand just waiting on them to call on him because at the end of the seven years of famine, 393 years ago, they were supposed to go back to Israel and they didn't leave because prosperity caused them to get comfortable and comfort caused them to be captured. The Bible is a living word. I don't care how many times you read it, it will continue to unfold as you walk in the Spirit of God. And all God was saying to me is, Mari, you may not see the miracles coming, but they're already coming. I already have what you need. He taught me the power of language. And I hadn't always got this right, but I'm telling you, my pastor was so articulate. He would say things like in a funeral, he said, Today, our brother is breathing the rarefied air of that celestial city. I thought, couldn't he just go to heaven? How do you even know they breathe up there? I mean, but he had these phrases. He preached on a Sunday night, and he'd make me go to Rotary with him on Tuesdays. And I know if you're a Rotarian, that's a big deal to you, but as a 28-year-old youth pastor, it's like, purgatory. The, the, the people that speak at Rotary normally don't need to speak. It's like, please stop. They're talking about stuff that a youth pastor does not care about, but he never missed a Rotary. He was perfect in his Rotary, rotary attendance for 61 years. 61 years, perfect attendance. We're driving back from Rotary. He said, hey, Davis, I want to talk to you. Normally, Rotary was one of those moments I was going to get a lecture going or coming. And I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, Sunday night you mentioned your beautiful bride, your brand-new bride, Gail. I said, yes, sir, I, I guess so. I'm trying to think, what did I say? And he said, and you said you reacted to Gail. I said, okay. He said, no, Mario, I want to talk to you. We don't react to our wives. Reaction is a man's word. Reaction is an aggressive word. Reaction is an action word. We respond. Responding is tender. We react with our fist. We respond with a caress. And for 30 minutes, he talked to me about the difference in responding and reacting. And you say, why would he do that? Because he wanted me to sharpen my skills because it doesn't matter what I'm saying. It only matters what people hear. What a pastor. Always be prepared. I've not always preached great sermons, but I've always prepared even the bad ones. I've never just gone up and said, hey, God, give me something. God said, you know, I did. It's in the book. You should have read it. I mean, I'm just waiting on the Lord to lead me. He's leading you to study and show yourself approved so you'd have something to say, instant in season, out of season. Number three, he taught me the power of friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 was one of his favorite verses. A friend loves at all times. And he said, Maury, once you tell somebody you're their friend, it doesn't matter what they do, you're still in the friend zone no matter what they do. He was on the board of Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. He was on the board of PTL. He was on the board of Oral Roberts, Oral Roberts Ministries. He was on the board of Kenneth Copeland Ministries all at the same time, and none of those guys got along. And they all have done some things that maybe they shouldn't have done. He stepped off the board, but he never stopped being their friend. He never stopped praying. 
He never stopped calling. He never stopped visiting them. I was a friend before you messed up. I'll be a friend forever. And he taught me the power of friendship, that regardless of how disappointed you may be in somebody, you never withdraw your heart from those people because God never stops extending relationship to us. He taught me the power of disciplined living, and I hated it. I hated this. He was, he was so meticulous that one day I left my office and I came back in, and at the end of the day, he had taken my desk and rearranged it and redone my bookshelf and left me a post-it note. This is the way a professional leaves his office at the end of the day. I thought, don't you have a church to run? You're not my mama. I had to be at his house at 5.45 a.m. every morning for a while, and then he just told me to start meeting him at Bachman Lake in Dallas. Bachman Lake has a trail around it that's 3.1 miles, two, two laps around it is 6.2 miles. It's 10K. And Monday through Friday at 6 a.m., we had to be standing there. You ready to go? We'd go. And as we'd run around that lake, he would talk to me. And I'm thinking, how do you talk? I mean, I've got little short legs. I'm like a gerbil running. I mean, I'm like, this is hard. I mean, there ain't no fun in this. But he taught me the power of daily discipline. Doesn't matter when you went to bed, you still get up every morning at the same time and you exercise your body. I cannot tell you how many times he would back his car out of the garage, say, just a minute, get a wet rag and wipe the whole car down and then dry it off with a towel. He said, you know, Mari, if you do that every day, your car just stays perpetually clean. Every morning he wiped his wife's car and his car off and dried it. You need to do that for Sam Lee. And, I mean... Uh, you go in his closet, and his shoes were always shined. He said, you know, I may not have time to shine my shoes if I need to get up, so I never put my shoes up that I don't shine them before I put them back up on the shoe rack. Everything in his life was done just like that. From his verbiage to his dress to his demeanor to his habits, he understood the power of a disciplined life. You could go to that scripture in Joshua that said, be careful to do according to all that I've told you. He believed you ought to be careful in everything you do, from the way you looked, the way you talked, the way you walked, the way you sat. Uh, Gary Page and I were talking the other day, and we were laughing about all the things he did. We, he, he would take you to the platform, and he would say, I want you to learn how to sit on a platform. And he'd take you to the church platform when nobody's there, and he said, now sit down. You'd sit down, and he'd say, no, no. Put your right leg over your left leg, cross your legs at the knee. You don't sit like this. You don't sit like this. You cross your legs at the knee, right leg over the left leg. That way, when everybody looks at all the pastors, it's aesthetically pleasing to the eye that people, there's not an oddball out. And that's how we sat on the platform. And Gary Page, who had been his youth pastor for 12 years, came to work as a senior adult pastor. And he said, he said, yeah, we were going out. You know, I'd worked for him for, for years, been around him for years. He was my brother-in-law. And he said, hey, Gary, get a chair. Before we go out, he said, here's how you sit. And he said, he started teaching me like I was the 18-year-old youth pastor again. He said, put your right leg over your left leg and cross at your, at your knees. You can get them big old thighs together. And he said, he just walked off. Now, a guy saying that to a lady probably would have a problem. But to his brother-in-law, he thought, he was meticulous. You say that's controlling. It's controlling if he's not your father. If he's your father, it's training. Generosity. His level of generosity was so incredible. We were in Crosby, North Dakota on a ride around America, 
and his long-term friend, Jack Pruitt, was given 72 hours to live in the hospital. I was with Dylan on his ride in 2013, and he said, Mari, I need to be at the hospital for Jack. Got to go. A 70-some-odd-year-old man drove straight from Crosby, North Dakota, to Dallas, Texas, without taking a rest, without going to bed, drove through, gave of his life to be there for his friend. He taught me to give in every offering. Wherever you are, whatever church you're in, you give in every offering. He said, you wouldn't come to church and not sing. You wouldn't come to church and not pray. You wouldn't come to church and not listen. You wouldn't come to church and not respond to the altar if the Spirit of God led you to do that. Why would the only thing you did in a church service be not given the offering? Because the offering is your highest form of worship. I can't tell you how many people say, when my husband died, Pastor George wrote me a check and sent me a card for $100. He was forever giving of himself. I called him when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2013. Flew to his house and he took me out on his back porch and he had chairs out of the original Texas stadium and he said, Maury, sit over there where Roger Staubach said. He said, I have a feeling you're fixing to tell me you need a Hail Mary. I said, I do. Because Roger and Bob Hayes created the Hail Mary Pass. And I told him about being diagnosed with cancer. And he said, what do I need to do for Gail? I thought, forget Gail. I'm the one dying. You need to pray for me. I mean, I've got insurance. Gail's going to be fine. But he cared about people. What do I need to do for your wife and kids? Just gave of himself over and over and over. He lived abundantly. He grew up in a little West Texas town born in Haskell, Texas. His mother used to get mad. He said, I was born, Maury, I was born out there in that cotton shack. She said, Don, you were not born in a cotton shack. You were born in the house with a midwife. He said, well, that's not how I remember it. But he became this influential general in the faith, and he learned to live abundantly. And whether it was motorcycle rides or stopping and just having a cup of coffee, we'd run around that track, that lake, and as we were running around the lake, on the second lap every day, every time we went around it, the sun would come up as we crossed the dam that held the lake back. We'd be running across the dam. He said, Mari, the sun's coming up. Joy's coming our way. And I thought, no, it's about two miles from right here. And about two miles from right here, Joy's going to come when I get to stop running and, but he would, every day, he'd tell me the sun's coming up and joy comes in the morning. And can I tell you, every time, not every now and then, every time the sun would be coming up, joy comes in the morning. And then we would go to the Whataburger, and he would go in Whataburger, and he would order some eggs and bacon or whatever, and I'd sit down. But there was a homeless guy that we always ran past called Norman. And he would tell Norman, hey, Norman, we're going to come around one more time. Meet me at the Whataburger. Norman was at that Whataburger, and he would go over and put $5 on the counter and say, give Norman a breakfast and all the coffee he wants. He fed Norman every day, and I said, why do you do that? That guy's a bum. He said, it doesn't matter. I can show the love of God in a tangible way and put some nourishment in his body that he cannot spend anywhere because I paid the Whataburger for him to have a healthy meal once a day, and I told him when I first started doing it, I'm representing God, 
I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and I want you to know Jesus loves you. Every time he sees that $5, he hears that again. He was a generous man, and most people will never know when he lived in an extravagant moment or a simple cup of coffee at a roadside coffee shop. He lived life abundantly. But let me tell you how he finished life. My pastor taught me how to finish. You don't start what you don't finish. The grit factor has to be there. The endurance, the faith factor. We were in Pampa, Texas, which is just outside of Amarillo, and one of the ministers of music at Calvary Church had gone up there and been pastor in a church for 20 years, and he passed away. And Gail and I flew to Amarillo and went to Pampa, and Pastor George was preaching the funeral. We were with the family. Gail was playing, and he preached the sermon. I told him, he's 83 years old. I said, wow, what a sermon. What and one of the top three funeral sermons I've ever heard. Articulate, clear, powerful, compelling. And he said, Davis, God's blessed me, but keep praying that prayer. When he turned 75, he said, I want you to pray something for me every day. One prayer. I said, what? He said, pray my mind and my body run out the same day. I said, okay. He said, I don't want my mind leaving my body, and I sure don't want my body leaving my mind. Wanted to go out the same day. Well, that's a pretty good prayer. I'm going to start praying that now just in case I'm going early. I don't want one of them leaving the other one. The next week on the following Wednesday, he spoke at Rotary and preached another funeral. Woke up Thursday and wasn't feeling good. On Friday, they took him to the hospital and admitted him to the Baylor hospital there in Irving, Texas. I was in Dallas. I could not go to the hospital because of the COVID restrictions. And so I was talking to him on the phone and to his wife, Gwen, and his daughter, Valerie, trying to keep up with what was going on. He's in the hospital through the weekend. I talked to him on Monday. I talked to him on Tuesday. He's drinking a Starbucks coffee that somebody brought him. And for the last 10 years, he had a triple shot, extra hot, non-fat latte. Even though the doctor told him, you got to knock off the caffeine. I said, knock off the caffeine. He said, Maury, I'm 80 years of age. I'm not knocking off anything. But whatever. On Wednesday, they were doing some tests, and he wasn't doing well. They had had to go from the little things in the nostril to a pressurized mask, pushing some stuff in. And they, apparently they told him sometime Wednesday night, we can keep you alive, but you're going to have to be on a ventilator-type situation for the rest of your life. I left Thursday morning. I'd been in Dallas for seven days and landed in Nashville. And when I landed at the airport, I had a message from his daughter, Valerie. She said, call me immediately. And I thought, oh, no. And I called, and she said, Dad wants to FaceTime with you. I said, Okay. She hit the FaceTime, and he's laying there with his big oxygen mask on. And he said, Davis, I want to talk to you. I'm going to heaven today. I'm in a puddle. I've never walked with God without this man. 
There's nobody on earth that has done more for Mari Davis than Don George. This is my father, my mentor, my example, my role model, my hero. And he talked about, you know, you followed me around America on two different motorcycle rides. We did the Unite American Prayer Tour for the National Day of Prayer. We've traveled to continents around the world. We preached general councils for the assembly of God. He relived our life in about three minutes. And he said, I'm going to make you give me one more promise. I said, what is it? Whatever it is, the answer is yes. He said, okay. Tell me you'll see me at the throne because I will not talk to you again in this life. I said, yes. I'll be there. By the grace of God, I'll be there. He said, I love you. We're not going to drag this out. I'm going to kiss my wife goodbye, and I'm gone. Hung up the phone. His wife said, what am I going to do? She said, he said, you've got your daughter and her kids and other children. And his daughter, Valerie, said, but who's going to be our pastor? And he said, Maury, we'll take care of you. Tell him I said too. Kissed his wife, took his mask off, and three minutes later died. See, nobody took his life. He showed me how to lay it down. He left with the flags of faith flying. That man had finished his race, said his goodbyes, taking care of the people he needed to take care of. And as a father, said, I'm going to be one step in front of you. If you'll just follow me as I follow the Lord, what you've learned from this father will take you all the way to the father. And so on this Father's Day, I hope you'll take the time to call your earthly father. But more than that, make sure you serve your heavenly father. So can I pray for the dads in this room? Could I do that? Father, I thank you for the incredible opportunity to be in this house. I thank you for the honor that I've had of being in this pulpit. God, I pray your blessing on the father of this house, that you would give him the spiritual wisdom to lead this church in the way it should go. And God, I pray for the men in this house that are dads, fathers, that you would give them a spiritual reformation to live their lives in such a way that their children can choose to follow them and go all the way to the throne. Let us see one another in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.